are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Australia. I'm Nigel, I help connect businesses with tech talent, and today I'm your host. Okay, everyone, welcome to uh, another edition of the Evolution Exchange Podcast. Uh, Today we will be discussing the topic of scaling tech project teams. Uh, so, f- so firstly, before we begin, if everyone would like to give a quick introduction about themselves, that would be a, a great start. Um, Rahul, if you- if you could start. Uh, thank you, Nigel. Uh, it's Rahul. Uh, I look after technology uh, at Coles. I represent the technology supermarket operations uh, team. I've been uh, working in technology functions over last. Uh, 17 years uh, and uh, leading a big automation program at uh, Colts. Uh, interested in this conversation because scaling big teams is something uh, very common and now with the COVID and remote working, it has become a bigger challenge. And I think uh, there are some good uh, aspects of looking it across the board. So thanks. Perfect. Indranil. Um, hi, Indranil here. I work for Nintex as an engineering manager. I lead a bunch of mostly front-end engineers and QAs working on our uh, SaaS cloud offering, Nintex Workflow Cloud. Um, yeah, I'm really interested to understand with, with us also scaling a bit and everyone is scaling nowadays post-COVID. I'm really interested to understand uh, and, and learn, keen to learn from your experiences. I'm uh, as a leader, I'm really passionate about uh, forming high performance and self-organizing teams. And that's also, I think scaling is kind of part of it also. That's me. Perfect. Thank you very much. Uh, Randy, if, if you could introduce yourself. Yeah, um, I'm Randy Rathnaika, a managing consultant at Telstra Purple. Um, as a cloud uh, architect and a consultant, I work with uh, mostly with cloud technologies, mainly focus on Microsoft Azure. And I'm passionate about delivering agile projects with DevOps best practices. Um, uh, usually in my spare time, I um, you know, write blog articles, uh, maintain young IT students, and provide training as a Microsoft certified trainer. And I'm also keen to understand the topic of scaling um, uh, you know, uh, the, the teams uh, and to understand the other, other uh, viewpoints from the rest of the panel as well today. Perfect, thank you. And last, but certainly not least, Teresa. Hello everyone, my name is Teresa Neat. I am a director in quality engineering for Slalom Build. I head up the capability of quality engineering in APAC. I've been doing this for about 25 years. Um, I'm long in the tooth, but still very, very interested in the subjects we discuss. Co-founder of DevOps Girls, I'm a passionate systems thinker and humanist, and those two topics together make me very interested in how teams perform. So happy to be here. Thank you. Perfect. Great introductions, guys. Um, We'll get into the first question, uh, which Rahul has uh, introduced. Uh, Rahul, if if you'd like to introduce your question and uh, we we can get into it, then you, you can answer the question yourself and then we'll go around the table. For me, over the number of years, right, uh, we have seen when we're about scaling the team, right, um, uh, it's it's very important to manage the passion and pace. Uh, being in a retail industry, we know how important it is to be upbeat, uh, to, to meet customer demands or to just keep bringing offerings out uh, to the customers. So for me, I think it's a bigger question of how to maintain passion and pace when we scale teams. 
Because if that is not there, then scaling teams does not bring the outcomes that we are after. So that's that's sort of the question is um, if I continued on, you know, uh, reflecting back on as to what that uh, means and how we have gone about it is uh, scaling the teams. Uh, it always requires sharing a common vision with the team. The stronger the vision is and the stronger the penetration of the vision is to the team, uh, the performance of the team uh, becomes effective. For me, that means is you know, the ways of working that we have set, the growth patterns, the processes that we have set up with the team, they are all need to be well understood. And the team needs to well understand the expectations out of them working into that team. To, to make a scaled team, you know, I'm talking about scaling team in terms of engineering and technology parts. Uh, you're growing a team from, let's say, five people team to a hundred people team. When it is hundred people team, you're then substantially looking at they all trying to achieve an outcome and then how their growth pattern is. Then second element then comes is finding the right people. Now, the definition of right people exists in many different angles. But for me, right people is the people who have the skills and expertise, but they are fit as a team. If they are fit as an individual, it's a different deal. They could be expert, but if they don't fit in the team, in a scaled tech teams, it does not work. I, I try to go and find smarter people, more smarter than what we are in the team to basically increase everybody's potential and performance to the next level. Because then everybody tries to catch up to the most smartest person into the room and then together they can go. You know, forming small squads to be able to go for a bigger scale, fantastic. It works good if we put the right like-minded people. Then coming to the methods, uh, repetitive tasks, you know, automating those repetitive tasks for the team so that they don't have to spend unproductive hours in those things can scale the team much better. You can get better productivity out of it. You know, if they have to do documentation, are there better mechanism? You know, confluence. It's an easy, common method now understood across all technology. How can we inbuilt the DevSecOps uh, view where? People can then build on their own and then, you know, they can promote the code, code baselines and things like that. So those methods and processes, the more repetitive tasks we can take out of it and automate uh, can scale the team much easier. The fourth element for me is giving teams a platform or an opportunity to be able to learn and maintain and grow their relationship within themselves. And those relations and things is what grow the total effective culture of that particular team. Okay. We had a scenario where most of the team worked on a particular integration in API, you know, and that particular integration API was not performing that well. They tried all different methods, but then we just opened it up to everyone into the team and we did a pretty hackathon for 48 hours or so, you know, and the outcomes that you would see is now varied ideas are coming along and then you bunch them together, you get an outcome. So, you know, so just getting into that part of giving them the platform because they are in their day-to-day -day work as leaders, getting strong leadership to be able to then handle that type of things, that's. And then engaging communication. When we scale the team, communication becomes the biggest problem. And to be able to have not just right communication or enough communication or effective, to me, it's an engaging communication. It means people should understand you know, when that communication is happening, the purpose of the communication, the 
frequency, the scaling of that communication, what does that mean to me? And how does that reflect back into them? And at all, uh, I get to say for scaling things, much more important to have fun, celebrate, and then be you know, informative about as to what the team achieves because the small, small achievements would bring that fusion of energy into the team, which although at the same time, you might be starting with a couple of more developers, and there are some that are achieving the highest potential of it, but together they would just feel that they are part of the team and they are constantly growing and delivering. So to me, these are all different mechanisms that brings the passion and pace uh, into a scaled up team or a continuously scaling team. And then we can just grow and grow within that and there are no boundaries uh, for it. Yep, lovely, but very uh, well thought out and insightful. Uh, Teresa, uh, if, if you'd like to jump in. Yeah, I do have a thought on this. Uh, for me, the essence of scaling a team is not to add complexity to the team itself, but to create smaller teams that are then self-functioning, autonomous, and the passion that you generate in a smaller team is far more possible and self-generating that you do in a large team. So for me, scaling is not necessarily adding people to the same team, but adding people to adjacent teams and perhaps cloning or spawning other teams that can then self-organize, generate their own passion. Uh, and I tend to hire for more, less than talent, I hire more for potential uh, because potential builds the team. Uh, the last thing I want on my team is someone who is a total hero but doesn't know how to play nicely with other people on the team. So those are the uh, the points that I'll say of how I scale teams is I hire for certainly uh, uh, their, their culture, their passion, their fit, uh, and yet we want diversity at the same time. So we're very careful on not hiring the same people over and over. And we grow smaller teams as we call them a two pizza team. So enough for two pizzas to feed is the right size for a team. That's what I would do. Yep, perfect. Um, <clears throat> Indranil or Randy, uh, did, did you want to I suppose, jump in on this question? Sure, I'll, I'll start. Um, I think there was a uh, lot to unpack on, on Rahul's uh, question there. Uh, I'll, I'll start with passion. I think um, on, on similar lines, what, what just Teresa mentioned, right? I, I also prefer smaller teams. I think if it goes beyond, you know, five, six members, or if it's a 10 or 15 team, a 15 member team, then it kind of becomes a crowd. Um, and you anyways will work on two, three different things in that at that level, right? So th then they'll become silos. Right, so in those type of teams. So smaller teams, absolutely, yes. Uh, another advantage of having smaller teams is that you can generate future leaders. I strongly believe that leadership is a shared responsibility. And 80% of what we do as leaders can be done by leading by influence, where you actually, the people not reporting to you, right? The other 20% part is mostly admin stuff where you, you know, do salary reviews and you're you know, check-ins and stuff like that, right? So um, uh, smaller teams is a, will be becomes a very good playground for future leaders to experiment, right? So you can actually say, oh, you know what? You have like five in your in your team. 
uh, you can be the leader of this team. Just try it out. If you like, you like. If you don't like, that's fine, right? So, so I think that that experimentation, you won't be able to. Nobody would like to lead like 15 people in the beginning. This is the truth. Leading people is hard. It's 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 much more complex than than dealing with just just technical and code based system because people are unpredictable, right? Um, uh, another thing which I would probably take care about uh, uh, while scaling this team is to have very clear cut um, vision about the culture so that we don't dilute the culture and we can be opinionated about it. And it, it's again, not, not from the leader itself, but from the teams, right? So if the team believes that this should be our culture, we should definitely wait for the right people not necessarily, again, uh, probably you won't use the word smarter. I'll probably use smarter in the context of EQ, not IQ, emotional quotient. Um, there's, a, there's a very good book, uh, which, which I'm basically referring to right now, is Ideal Team Player by Patrick Lincioni, uh, which talks about three qualities of an ideal team player, right? So uh, humble, hungry, and smart. Smart, not the IQ smart, but the EQ smart, right? And it's fairly important while you, while you scale that, right? Uh, so culture. And then the team should have a vision. And that vision, uh, you basically can revisit. So it's not something written on stone. Next five years, this is the vision, right? So just like Agile, you should revisit your vision to make sure that, oh, is, does it make sense? Does it make sense? And I think the vision should not be uh, uh, dictated by the leaders. It should be, the team should come up, right? And uh, often we might feel that, oh, the moment you mention that there's like we need to talk about vision, it's all silence. It's not that most of the team members don't don't want to say anything. It's mostly an oh, it will be probably useless. Like it won't be action. So once you get that confidence that yes, whatever you say, we'll make sure that it gets action. If not now, maybe in future. I think that will help the team to get that vision. Uh, the other part is upskilling, right? So when we uh, when we scale teams, I think upskilling and onboarding is very very important. So that and upskilling not only in the technical side of things, as I mentioned about future leaders, right? That those leadership opportunities, leading by influence, and those things, uh, all is also pretty critical. And the last thing for me would be autonomy, right? So just just leave the team alone, just do them whatever they want. Have boundaries, have very loose boundaries, and say, okay, this is like if let's say you're using AWS, you may not want to experiment with Azure or, or vice versa. And so, so have very loose boundaries, and then let them play. I think that's the example which Rahul gave around the API thing, and he opened up to uh, multiple teams and with a hackathon, and that basically gave them autonomy because it's hackathon. There's no consequences to it, and that's why people came up with different ideas and that's pretty important for for teams to get that autonomy so that's that's pretty much me pretty much from my side what do you randy um yeah so one of the key takeaways that i took from rahul's one is actually the opportunity to learn that is very important in any any organization if you want to really evolve with the moving technology because the technology get outgrown pretty pretty quickly the the right thing that is today is pretty much going to be outgrown tomorrow and it's not the right thing maybe for that platform going forward so creating that and keeping that opportunity open for the developers to keep experiment keep finding out the new ways of delivering their work is a very crucial uh, thing to do in any organization if you enable them if you have that platform and naturally that's my own experience that the team will naturally go and learn maybe do the certifications and bring that experience and knowledge Base back to the organization and to the project. Uh, if you think about the old school ways that you know companies was uh, not you know willing to pay for that you know extra 
uh, lessons or extra classes or whatever. But nowadays, all these organizations actually invest on people. People is the crucial part of any business. If you empower and uplift them, they naturally tend to give back. That's the natural thing. It's not always the salaries. It's not always the numbers in dollars, what you get. It's always that company culture and the enablement that the companies do to make the best out of their engineers and the rest of the teams is important. I see that is a far more important to create the pace and the, the passion of any project, keep it live and up to date and in the edge. Yep. Yeah, some some very uh, <clears throat> insightful uh, answers there. And you know, I think a, a lot to unpack from that, I suppose. Um, so yeah, th thanks for sharing all the insight there, guys. Um, uh, we'll, we'll move on to, I suppose, the next point uh, or the next question. Uh, which is from Indranil uh, on how to pivot cross-functional teams to cope with project requirements as they arise. I'll quickly explain a bit, bit on my question. So um, this should not happen often, but usually in, from my experience, when it happens, it happens for the most critical requirement, which are most critical feature. So there are two parts to my question, right? So one is you, you start your feature, whatever product or feature you're building on and suddenly the engineering team during the development realizes that oh there are actually more dependencies and we need like two more three more teams to work on this so that's that's one scenario another scenario is change in the requirement itself or priority or change in the prioritization of certain requirements of a complex feature spanning across multiple teams. Now, there's no right or wrong answer. I'm keen to know uh, your experiences um, in these type of scenarios. Yep, Teresa, if, if you'd like to get involved there. Yeah, I'm very interested in this subject. Um, I was working at a place previously uh, where people had change fatigue, where change was constant and you would invest your energy into something and you would talk about it, get excited about it. And then the next thing you know, oh, guess what? We are just going to pull the plug on this and we're not even going live with this product. So I'm going to agree with you that uh, we can't do this too often. So change needs to happen very, very considerately. And while we want to be agile and responsive and you know, other buzzwords, we need to be respectful of the impact of change. But in the example of an engineering team where they don't have a say about the change, I would definitely want to include them in the decision and at least give them visibility of the decision and give them the understanding and give them a space to talk about it. If we don't involve our engineering teams in the decisions, at least even when we know they don't have a say and the decision's been made, we consult them about the impact that this has. We talk through the impact of the change. We talk through how they are feeling about it, not necessarily in a, um, a psychological talk through session, but we, we really want to be inclusive of the experiences people are having, the impacts that they are experiencing from the change. So for me, I would share the reasons for the change or the pivot and by doing that, you're treating people with trust and discuss the change with them so that they feel included and then definitely don't change too often. So don't do this all the time. Guess what team? We're going to be having a change now. Let's have a talk about that. Do it respectfully and do it selectively would be my advice. 
Uh, Randy, if, if you'd like to jump in there. Yeah, so I'm certainly agreeing with uh, Teresa on that. Basically, um, we need to make make the team inclusive of the decisions because one of the things that it's a human psychological thing, whether it's a project or whether it's anything that you're passionately doing, and if you're changing the course of the directions of that project is leading to, everyone will have that emotional attachment saying that, oh, I did that piece of work. Now it's all of a sudden you are saying that it's not important anymore or not really useful anymore. People will have that emotional psychology hitting into them and saying, you know, you did something that is not useful. We all are looking for a sense of accomplishment and looking for that, even though we are not looking for praise, like, you know, we are jumping and asking for praise, but we internally, we know that we are looking for that, you know, uh, sense of accomplishment to say, yeah, I achieved that it working. But when all of a sudden some decision is made that to discontinue a product or a, a feature that you so fondly built up, and all of a sudden, everyone will have that emotional, um, you know, frustrations, thinking, "Oh, this is ch change. Keep changing, and keep changing. It's okay once in a while, with good reasons. But if it happens quite often, it's very likely to impact on the retention. People will start thinking about this is not the right place for me to be in because every time I do something, you know, tomorrow it's not the right thing to do. So. Yeah, if the people do not have that good reason and the visibility why the organization or the product owner is changing the course of the direction of that product, and if they're not inclusive of those decisions, if they were not given an opinion and a chance to opinionate it out, very likely that people will start considering to move out and it's not very good for a, a sustainable team. Um, yeah, that's my viewpoint. And, and Rahul? Uh, if if you want to, I suppose uh, answer the the question as well yourself. Uh, I fully agree with uh, Teresa and Randy and and Daniel. Um, I'll give you a different aspect of uh, the same thing. Eh? Uh, continuously, when we see, you know, requirements could change. Uh, requirement changing may or may not impact in uh, feature or product being not utilized. So one one thing uh, in in a bigger programs and stuff uh, or bigger teams, what we have thought upon and word is the design and the architecture uh, takes the front door part of it, which means you know getting that buy-in from the people before the onset of actually getting our teams to do a major piece of work. If there is suspicion around, you know the course is going to change or something like that, prioritizing or maybe doing a small uh, thing and with a notion to the team to say, hey, this is a trial or this is something. Now I'm talking about, I think in many of those aspects, this type of ideology could help the team because then they are already prepared. Okay, before commencing on that particular sprint or commencing on that particular project. When an unexpected mechanism happens where you just, it was just out of the blue, which means either as a team or as a leader or as a business force, we have no idea of this happening. In that one, I think I go with Randy Bart is just taking people through that journey and being very transparent about it, the reason of why that happened. If the people would understand the reason, then you won't have to sell anything to them. Because then in that case, the way you got sold is the way the team members would get sold. But they have to understand the reason. And if there was no reason, then it gives an enough mechanism to go and counter react that. And then the team would be able to provide to say, hey, we spent, let's say, you know, 50 man days on it. I have built an asset. If this asset you're not utilizing, 
basically you have wasted that much organization's money and on top of the time further on if we do something else it's going to take another three months which means the roi on whatever feature i was building is now delayed so you start putting those things and then you go back onto that you have a much firmer aspect to actually dispute that irrational claim because the rational is what is important and the third element on any of the changes and stuff you know i've gone through many of these uh, bits i always go back and says you know we do a risk profile on something that we are taking on and in risk in terms of not what we are trying to deliver or anything but if let's say i'm doing something brand new which hasn't happened in my organization i'm trialing i know that there will be components of changes or components of unknowns we all deal with known unknowns known knowns but unknown unknowns is one area which demotivates us or when we have spent good amount of time we just try to take that out right at the start whatever is the journey if the sprint is 3 weeks in the first two days we would be sitting with our business stakeholders we would be sitting with our product owners making sure is there any unknowns unknowns in this are there any gochas in this can i can i get that out can i get that explained in that case i can still reprioritize the features so i think couple of those strategies and things may help keep building uh, the scaled up squads and the scaled up teams and keeping them passion and not getting them disturbed with any of that perfect uh, yes very very i suppose uh, insightful ideas again uh, on i suppose the question there i suppose does anyone have anything else to add on on that one or would you like to move on to the next okay so the the next questions from uh, teresa uh, which is how do we balance asynchronous with asyn- synchronous work when we are working on different time zones um so yeah teresa if you, if you could maybe give some context around that and then ans- answer it uh, yourself and we'll go around the table yeah let me give you some context and a little bit of color uh i have worked with product teams that have teams in china and uh, singapore or philippines or india and i'm also now working in a in a multinational consultancy where not only are my colleagues overseas but some of my clients are too and for me the asynchronous nature of being on a different time zone and yet how to retain the function and the feel and the form of a team how to integrate these people into your team and i purposely use the word team because i don't see them as outsourced uh, resources i see them as team members so how do we juggle that asynchronous nature of remote work um while still retaining a connection to the team and still retaining productivity i'd love to know what your thoughts are on that Yep, Andrew, if you'd like to uh, sure. jump in. Yeah, so this um I I I really love this topic Teresa so um I I'll, I'll go first on this. So um there are quite a few parts which Teresa just explained. Uh one thing which I'd like to add is that it's not only varying time zones, it's also varying cultures, which is also very important to kind of think about because uh, a team in China probably won't react the same way a team in Australia and India and, and so on, right? so um and then then i think there is a you mentioned about outsourcing right um it depends on the type of work whether it's something which 
you can just assign it to that team, whether it's just support cases or handling something legacy maintaining, or whether it's just developing new features, which is spanned across multiple teams and multiple geographies. If it's not something which is just maintaining and doing on the sideways, if it's something which is involved with other teams in different geographies, then as I think we've discussed before, you've also raised that point, which is involving them in the decision-making and so that they are part of it now, the question should be, okay, we can involve them in decision-making, but they're like 11 hours away from us or something like that. That's where uh, something which I've been actually reading about uh, a lot during the, the remote work is async communication. Um, something, and this is, not, this is not by me, but something which uh, you'll get a lot of articles from GitLab. So there's async communication and part of that, which is how you communicate uh, um, in a low context manner. So um, I think in GitLab, they have teams across like 60, 65 countries that they're all remote. And they, it, it has been that way even pre-COVID. Uh, and they have really good articles. I can share that later on. So um, I think it's mostly around not expecting people to reply to you real time. That's, that's basically it in a nutshell, right? And it can be even teams which are co-located. I mean, in today's scenario, let's say co-located, but remote, right? So even if they are in Melbourne, uh, you, I mean, people can work during different times. Absolutely, right? Because it's all flexible now. So that that thing, so that's number one, is, is not expecting people to uh, reply uh, uh, instantly. Again, there are exceptions, production incidents, stuff like that, of course, that's there but that should be tackled in a different channel. So if you have the same channel for everything in the world, then you probably have different channels for that so that people have can have their notifications, right? Second thing is how do you how do you make sure that you give enough context? Not by saying that, hey, Teresa, do you know uh, that thing we talked about that day uh, in, in a teams, like in, in a channel where everybody else is there, or oh, that thing probably is gonna change, right? So so assume that that they don't know anything about anything. Just explain it. Now, the thing might be that it sounds very tedious, right? Because you'll have to write all those things. Um, in long run, that can serve as your documentation because you know, whatever choice of your communicator you use with a Teams or Slack or anything else, you can actually search and go back to that. And that's why it's very important to have specific channel, like not the channel where you're sharing memes and there is just a bunch of information in between, right? So that's right. So it's I think that that communication is fairly important. Now, with written communication, the challenge is the tone because you don't have the intonation, body language, and everything else. So it sometimes may sound rude, right? So that's why it's very important to uh, one of the things which which it's there in the GitLab article. Also, one of the things which I, which I also use is have data instead of saying, "Oh, that's that went uh, um, uh, beyond our expectations," or, or it, "it increased by so much" and stuff like that. So instead of using those quantitative terms, just use data. Saying that, "Oh, we had I know 300 new users coming in and stuff like that," right? Um, decide on the format. Uh, agree with your team on on that particular format. Have very clear set of communication, possibly bullet points. I mean, that's not something which is written there, but I follow that because yeah, just have short bullet points or steps. I think that's step one, do this. Step two, do this. If you're stuck, then go to step five. Something like that. If you're if if that's instructional, um, uh, provide them any resources, any previous conversations. Right. Say add add the Slack link or the Teams link or whatever. Um, and and then yeah, in general, assume that whomever you're sending that message is asleep, right? And we'll we'll check after a few hours. I think if you have that, 
uh, it will immensely help in local. And the reason uh, I've actually tried this and it's, it's relatively successful, again, I'm not master in this. We have, uh, because of an acquisition, we have now teams in Johannesburg and actually remotely all across South Africa. So yeah, imagine scheduling a meeting with, with South Africans. We, we did schedule, at least with my team, we did schedule a couple of meetings and we're like, nah, it's it's not feasible, right? It's it's either too late for us or too early for them, right? So what we started doing is is starting. We started giving a lot of context and a lot of over communication, right? Because they are dependent on us. So we always in the team ask this question: Oh, will this affect that team, right? It doesn't matter. Just tell them that we are doing this, right? And and that has helped us. I think in last five months or so, we haven't have any had any meetings. With, with them. Um, so yeah, I'm still still learning more about asynchronous communication and low context uh, communication. Um, but yeah, that's one of the tools I think which is fairly important. And coming to the outsourcing part, I think it's very important to, uh, uh, another thing which I'll mention apart from uh, keeping keeping those outsource team in the involved, involved in the decision-making, the second part is just keep the standards as is. So it's very important to keep the standards same across globe, which which is very difficult. But then, yeah, else else one of the teams or both the teams will get motivated, right? Which you definitely don't want. And that's that's pretty much it for me. Rahul, if, if you'd like to jump in on that, yeah, no, very good thoughts, Anil. Uh, to to add on something, uh, this is a constant challenge, right? This is a constant challenge that we face in today's world. Uh, very simple, simple things, you know. Uh, we started adding something uh, at the bottom of our signatures called, you know, a calls participates in flexible working policy. Uh, I am working these hours. Uh, please don't mind if you don't receive a response. Very simple. It's it's being cut, you know, a bit more humble about, uh, and people do respect that. Having a handshake mechanism, I think in the, that's what you were talking about, having small bullet points talk through over communication. To me, it's like a handshake. If let's say we're operating in five different time zones, okay, and then if you put a circular uh, team view, then obviously there will be a handshake that would go around. Okay, if they are completely disjointed, uh, you know, works, then obviously it is a bit more of a status gathering or something like that. But if it is a collaborative effort, then yes, you could utilize time zone to your advantage. And we have done so, making sure that the three teams working in conjunction, it's effectively you utilizing three days work in one day because you could utilize around the hour. Okay, so having that handshake mechanism. To have that as an inclusive bit, having huddles, you know, whatever fortnightly, monthly, trying to do that, or even though it could be odd hours for some, but finding what that majority or that fit is for once a fortnight or once a month, where you can get everybody together, fantastic. You know, even if you have to do it two times, but the same representation could be there, it's good. We started recording some of these things like as well. So recording the mechanisms that the people can play back is good because then they know that, okay, yeah, this information got shared. And we started sharing those videos to the whole team. So there was something important, you know, a strategy discussion, whatever, you know, record it and you send that across to the mass team. People can come back. They have a platform to put their point of views, you know, their thumbs up, this and that. And then having a common platform for the team to work, you know. Uh, I've seen places where, you know, SharePoint is being used, Jira is used, this is used, that is used. You know, common mechanisms for a combined team 
is is a must have because if you don't have that then it creates disparities it creates you know teams to go off track just trying to see what so common common platforms is is key coming back to the outsourcing vendors and stuff uh, i keep talking this thing and there is a fantastic way to say it's a team member not a resource because that's that's the ideology the team members are their team members how they are funded or paid should not be a reflection of how they are in the team so 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 they are a team member they are achieving the same outcome as you are or anybody else so whether they are coming through a contractor agency or they are coming through a vendor into a fixed term arrangement or if coming from a vendor as a long term consultancy arrangement or as a single person operating for just one day or a person working for 15 years in the company none of that important because you are all coming to do a shared vision a shared objective which you all are part of so to me it is definitely very very important to have a common view across all team members and all team members should know that they are treated equally uh, not that having distribution list by groups of what and then trying to merge them together to just say yeah the we we follow this policy or we put a name tag uh, i don't have it but it's a, it's a name tag it's it's rahul it's not rahul the contractor rahul the uh, this company person or whatever right that that's not who are, we are so that that that's as my feel about that yeah brilliant randy um you'd like to add, yeah, add your so, point yeah just a one thing to add which i think it's missed from great great ideas from indri rahul pretty much and of course good examples from teres as well one thing that i would like to add is especially for on the product owners and the actual the project ownership one thing that they missed is just because adding you know a people across the world doesn't mean that the product is going to come so much faster like four times faster five times faster just because that they also need to understand there's a handover time there is a miscommunication there are time gaps there are people who can take sick leaves and you know not aligned up the stars in the right way to deliver everything so they also need to understand that there's element of you know uh, some compromise in that model yes of course we can deliver a lot more work and a lot more uh, output however it's not going to be double up or triple up as per the number of locations you sort of like duplicate this is a common misconception the other thing is about you know uh, people being uh, you know overwhelmed about that because if someone is running a meeting with offshore party on offshore team give we also need to think about that person needs to get some rest time we can't expect them to you know run a constant marathon and say you know come to the next day work uh, you know sharp at 8:00 again and run the whole marathon again because that person will soon then will be looking for another job these are the common um, sort of like pitfalls in these sort of models where people don't or, or the, the project managers or the the leadership doesn't think about and quite obviously going to fail we need to factor in these sort of like you know extra time and also that uh, a people aspect of it we need to care for that to make sure this model is going to be successful um i myself has done that at a, at a certain point i have hated it because you know the someone is not understanding it but honestly uh, once you have that processes once you have things and the people aspect of it you will start getting it the other one is about i think everyone nailed on that is about communications especially in a team you don't need to hide anything you can actually create up a, a small team channel and actually put everything you know uh, jokes aside all, all the technical matters just 
flushing it through. I'm doing this, you know, I, I'm taking over this task or I, I'm looking into this, but keep it transparent. So everyone is across and everyone knows what's going on. So it, not only the, the offshore or uh, a person across the uh, world, your own other team member who's sitting next to you will also get to know that same awareness. So open communication, thinking about that time uh, and also thinking about uh, people's concern, like, you know, people's well-being is very important in this sort of models. That's my take out of it. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, Indranil, uh, we'll come back over to you if, if you have extra nope, point. Nope, or, yeah. or, or Rahul, did you, did you want to jump back in on that point yourself? Sorry, Yeah, did you want no, to jump back back in on that yourself or no? I think they have their hands up from the previous. Oh, OK, perfect. Ah, All yes. good. Uh, Teresa, then I suppose back to yourself, then I suppose some, some good answers there, I suppose, to the to the question. Uh, was there anything else you'd like to add yourself? I absolutely love the answers. I agree with you and had thought about some of these already. Uh, the caveat I will say is that when we record meetings, and trust me, I've tried this, when we record meetings overnight and you then have to watch three or four hours of videos the next morning to try and catch up, uh, it could be very catastrophic to your working day. I suggest that we be very selective about what has to be watched and what doesn't have to be watched. We all know that we have too much on our plates, so we tend to work eight hours in a day and then we've got to watch videos. So managing that is important. I really liked your points, Indranil, on you've clearly thought about this, uh, how to how to work with your offshore teams. As a fellow South African, I know how hard it is to talk to people in South Africa and the time zone overlap is just catastrophic. Um, so thank you for your tips. That was very helpful. Perfect. So some great answers again there, guys. Uh, so I suppose onto the, the final question, which is from Randy, um, which is what are the challenges with integrating new members to existing project teams and how best to overcome them? Um, so Randy, again, if yeah, some context around that. and. Um, yep. So uh, I have been thinking about this question a lot. So first of all, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, as team members, we are very, uh, very much excited to welcome new members because that means, you know, someone is going to take off that workload from us, right? So, but the thing is, there are some challenges we encounter. If they're not in right places, we are going to be very much have, uh, uh, you know, rather than having a benefit out of getting that new team member, we are going to have lot more negative experience and people will start hating it because people now have to hand uh, you know handhelding things like that so the question that i have is what are the common um, sort of like uh, the, uh, the the problems that you have faced and what are the things that you have done in order to uh, make that you know a positive experience for the newcomer to come on board and actually uh, you know deliver the projects or the outcomes that they you initially expected from them Yep, Rahul, if, if you'd like to jump in there. Yep, uh, I'll start with it because I think this is very uh, dear to my heart of uh, integrating new team members. Um, uh, one common thing that I've seen is, you know, uh, I think it's preconceived notions. When the team come, they, they're coming and they, they're thinking that they're going to like change the world, right? That they're going to make a best impact and be the best of themselves because they are the chosen ones. When they come in, 
it is a slow ride sometimes depending on how they start inventing i think at that point of time having uh, a support structure around them okay and a support structure not to just understand the team but to actually understand everything around it so we had a mechanism you know uh, to you assign a buddy to them assigning a buddy to them which means they can go back to that person and it's not an organizational hierarchy or anything it's it's a buddy who will tell them you know okay um, this is how you navigate into the office this is how you go about it here is some knowing normal know how sometimes could be a challenging too is should i actually even ask that question oh it would be so foolish for me to do so these type of things uh, you know brings the people down to have them as an open environment for them to just go and thrash things out very very important having a very clear thought induction process is very important and in that induction process it is not about hey uh, you have come in take your laptop thank you very much this is who we are uh, here is your assignment please finish that in 3 weeks no the, the, gone are the days you know it's about taking them through the company profiling what's your vision what's your strategy what are we trying to do what's the project you know it might take couple of days or so but it's a thought upon thing and it's a repetitive thing which means it can be well formulated at coach we do like a in store experience for all the team members so that they can go and experience the stores before they start working on any projects and things so induction process and an onboarding thing is very important and then from a line management perspective i think uh, we have an obligation uh, to make sure that onboarded team members uh, are are they get the runway to basically go faster and in that one the first 2 3 weeks needs to be a bit more of a checklist oriented eh? you know have i done multiple check ins with the person have we made sure that the person is comfortable do they need anything you know there is that there that culture of making sure that if there is some time given for people to learn and the complex the area or the complex the environment is the learning platform or, or the learning uh, time frame changes you know when people change roles we give them to say hey here is your transition period and your transitioning but when a new person comes in his or her transition is not there we just sometimes we get it into this part that oh you're just part of the team just go no they have actually much longer uh, learning uh, time or embedding embedding into the team time which i think we need to be open about and says okay these are the things and we working into the team would know our challenges anyway so i think we can direct them well it's just building that mindset uh, and knowing that here here are few things uh, could could help yep yep some brilliant points i suppose from a recruitment perspective as well i completely agree on the importance of a good onboarding and induction processes there obviously hugely important um theresa if if you'd like to jump in on this yeah the addition of a new team member to any team actually changes the dynamic of the team every time and uh if you use tuckman's stages of group development forming storming norming performing every time you add a new team member the team is reforming and you have to consider the fact that because the dynamics are changing you have to give a little bit of space and be 
understanding of the fact that the team needs to get to know this new team member and, and the relationships in the team change because of the addition or the subtraction of a team member. So my thought on this is that I, I really agree with your points, Rahul, that we, we buddy them, we onboard them, we give them space to, to find what's going on, to learn, bearing in mind that you're going to be overwhelmed for the first weeks and months before you understand anything. So you have to have that space, but also to understand that the team's dynamic has changed and that to assume that the team is the same would be folly and just to let the team readjust themselves as well. So if you know the tools of how to norm a team after they've stormed, then I would suggest that you do that even on a, on a smaller scale, perhaps as you did before. Just realize the team is changing and you have to be able to deal with that as well. Yep. Indranil, I think you're going to jump in there. Yep, sure. So um, so our product is basically no-code automation, uh, which essentially means a, a visual programming language, which makes uh, our customers' lives easier, right? But then on the flip side, for the developers, for the engineering team, it's a fairly complex product, right? Um, and, and onboarding is, is always a challenge for us, right? Uh, especially when we are remote, um, it, it, it becomes a bit bit more challenging because it can it can go two ways. Either the team, new team member might completely feel uh, left alone on, on their own or might completely feel, feel, feel overwhelmed or confused, right? So one thing which we do, very similar to what Rahul suggested, we, we do have a, a buddy uh, initially so that you can ask that person anything. And then uh, uh, the other thing which we do is pairing. So we really encourage uh, our new team members, does not matter what their level of seniority is, to pair uh, with someone else, right? With whatever they're picking, right? So that's it, by default, pair up with, with, with someone, right? Another thing which we do is we have some, uh, uh, when we onboard a new team member, um, if it's fairly decent and we know that somebody else also will be joining in, we try to record those videos and, and share it on the first couple of days where they're just filling up forms and stuff. They go through those videos. That helps. Uh, another thing which uh, we try to avoid, initially at least, is to just throw jargons and abbreviations at them, right? Have you? Do you know that XYZ system, right? So we try to be as elaborate as possible. Uh, till till they are accustomed to that those those uh, jargons, right? Um, uh, another thing which is uh, fairly important uh, for the for for me as a leader basically to have more frequent catch-ups, and and those catch-ups those one-on-ones should be driven by the employees uh, and and not based on what you think how how frequently you need to catch. Up. I'll give an example. Like we we just started a grad program, and when I asked the grad and and she's new to everything. Even even tech, right? Uh, she wanted to catch up every day. So that's fine. So we do catch up. We make sure that we do catch up every day, for, even if it's fifteen minutes, right? So I think that comfort level uh, uh, is is definitely important. Then they feel supported. Uh, for more senior candidates, I think it's very important to uh, um, speak up about things which you don't do well. That's I think as at a senior level that's super important. So that, oh, by the way, this part is is not great. So don't don't trust don't follow the status quo in this part and and give a suggestion on how to improve it. Right from an outsider point of view, I think that empowers them to think and that oh this is I'm not I'm not 
supposed to follow everything and I'm, I'm also able to make suggestions right um, and another part is uh, working with them on specific goals saying that what do you want in like what do you want to achieve in 30 days 60 days and 90 days um, we we have that framework where we can in our one-on-ones we do discuss about okay 30 days what do you think you'll be able to do? set up the solution start working on few things 60 days what do you want to do 90 days what do you want to do? and that's also employee driven right and you help the employees to basically the, the new joiners to basically achieve these goals and that's pretty much it yep randy yeah so uh, great insight on uh, something that I'm agreeing on. The positive onboarding experience is a must. That's, I think, the fundamental of uh, getting someone take off from where, where they join because that becomes the crucial point of, um, you know, someone to understand and feel inclusive, feel part of the team, and they, then they will feel like, you know, they can do, you know, wonders in the team. One thing that I would like to add, though, something that I feel, um, something that we wasn't discussing about that, it's actually about the documentation. Most new projects tend to use this agile as the scapegoat to say oh we are working in agile method therefore no need to document let's do as we go but one of the problems of that is we're actually creating uh, indiv individual dependencies and now as the team a person in the team leaves the history and the knowledge and the domain everything goes out of the window as well so i tend to sort of like you know update within my teams at least um to say include the up-to-date documentation. Doesn't need to be comprehensive as much as waterfall, at least maintain some live documentation uh, and make it incorporate as part of your definition of done. So when they deliver some work, they will have some level of documentation done so that anyone who comes onto the project will have that history, why we did it, what's the reason we chose that technology or methodology to deliver that. That's very crucial. The other point is maybe because I'm more passionate around the DevOps side of things, maybe that I'm actually very, uh, very much following that, is actually embedding your processes and the checks and balances into your pipelines. As you deploy and as you sort of, you know, have that pipelines deployed, uh, I myself, for example, the first thing that I do on the Sprint Zero, if I'm actually starting a project, is actually, uh, making sure that my pipeline at least has a skeleton to make sure that checks and balances are done. Because when the new team members come, that's like Teresa said, that's where you actually change in the, the culture of that team as well. Uh, what, what the new team member has now is, has that extra boost of confidence because that they are following the process, the, the actual automated pipelines actually go and checks, yeah, your code is as per to our standard. Yes, they are uh, vulnerability check. Yes, the unit tests are passing, things like that. That extra boost is very important. Um, I think Rahul at the very early on said that, you know, if something is repetitive, try to make it auto, um, you know, autonomous so that you can actually repeat it again and again. DevOps is a great way of doing that. And there is no excuse to not to do documentation and not to follow our DevOps best practices these days. We are living in, uh, in a modern age. Uh, we have the tools and everything enabling us to do that. And I reckon that is a key fundamental thing to any new team member to have that extra um, you know, information or the knowledge base, as well as the processors uh, confidence in order to success in the new role, which is very important for anyone to get going and do their work uh, to their best. I think thank you very much for uh, everyone's answers as well. Yeah, per perfect. And um, yeah, does anyone else have, I suppose, any, any more to add on on that question? Okay, perfect. Um, well, well, I, I think that's probably all we we have time for now. So look, 
personally, I'd like to thank you guys for joining us. That was quite enjoyable. Um, lots of fascinating insight and ideas shared and some book recommendations too, which I'll certainly be checking out myself. 